You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons. Visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Continuing in a sermon series on the book of James, trying to figure out how to practically live out this faith uh, to follow Jesus in the real world. And uh, today, it's just the way it's going to be. You know, some days we tell a lot of stories and some days you get other things coming your way. But today, um, today's going to be a little Bible study-ish. Okay, so it's just the way it's going to be. Um, so we're going to dig in and we're going to do some Bible stuff today. Um, you know, hopefully it won't kill you. Um, but uh, we're going to start, we're, we're going into chapter two of James. And there's a pre, uh, kind of a, a line that leads into it at the end of chapter one. So before we read our scripture and, and dig into chapter two, I want to read this um, from chapter one. But I want to point out that, uh, as we've mentioned the past couple of weeks, there can be, for those who are raised in more strictly religious homes um, or have a strictly religious background, that uh, there can be a lot of triggers when you read the Bible, and James is full of them. And so some of us don't have that background, and so we don't have that baggage. Great. Uh, you know, that I, in some ways you come to this text today a little bit more free. But those of us who, who come with a little bit of baggage, we're going to run into that today. And it's important just to name it in the front end and to look at it. And, and really, it's an invitation for us to see Scripture through some new eyes. And to find out that Jesus is actually maybe even better than what we thought he was. So, um, so the intro verse comes from the end of chapter um, one, verse twenty-seven of James, and this is what it says: it "says Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this: to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world." There are several things that could trigger us in there. I want to look at, at two of them, okay? So first off is this idea about religion that is uh, pure and faultless. That's trigger one. Uh, some of us have felt a lot of pressure to be good, to be a good boy, good girl, to be a good religious person, uh, which a lot of times came down to conforming. It came down to almost losing your personality and certainly losing some freedom. Uh, this idea of purity has been really overplayed by those who have controlled the religious narrative. And it, I mean, it includes everything down to measuring the length of your shorts. There are people on this call today who have had their shorts measured because they were being impure. Like, oh, you can't, you can't, you know, that quarter inch really is, is making the difference in your purity. And this idea of faultless, you know, so James talks about being pure and faultless. For some of us, it's become this neurotic preoccupation in doing everything right. But James, he clarifies, which is really helpful. And it's just beyond the scripture that we're gonna to read today. Um, he clarifies what religion that is pure and faultless is all about. It turns out it's not about the length of your shorts. Um, 
And he's going to use this word that's really one of my favorite words uh, in the New Testament. In the, in the Greek, it's this word telos, which is sometimes translated perfect. Um, so this is it in James 2.8. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, that's chapter 2, verse 8. And again, that can feel like a, a trigger as well. Like if you really, if you're perfect in the royal law found in scripture, like what? I have to be perfect again? But that, that word telos there is, it is used for perfection, but primarily in the sense of someone who has become who they're destined to be. So a rose bud in full bloom is called telos in the Greek. It's complete, it's perfect. Uh, a tangerine that is just so ripe, it's just going to taste so good, is called telos in the Greek. All right, it's when a harvest is, is ready to be brought in. That's telos. It's this organic, uh, organic sense of perfection, not, not the way we think of kind of checking all the boxes, getting everything right. It's this living flourishing sense. And so that's what James is talking about. He said, hey, you, your pure and faultless religion, it's this organic like keeping of the royal law in scripture. And then he goes on to clarify what the royal law is. And it's not this bunch of do's and don'ts. This is, here's the whole verse. He says in 2.8, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, right? If there's this fullness, this flourishingness in you, keep this, the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. He's talking about this new way of Jesus, not a calculated and correct morality, but loving actual human beings. And so this is, this is where James is leading now into chapter two. He's talking about loving human beings, not checking off boxes. Now, the second trigger uh, is kind of similar to the first one there in, in chapter 127. Uh, he talks about keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. Oh, you bad people. Naughty, naughty. All you people who went out to a bar last night, you know, or turned on your television, being polluted by the world. Now, there's plenty of things that we can do wrong when we go to a bar or turn on the TV. It actually is not what James is talking about at all. He circles back around to this whole idea of what this idea of being worldly and polluted by the world is all about. Again, it's not... It's not this hyper-religiosity that's trying to pressure us into conformity to, to all looking the same or voting the same. So this is where he circles back around with that idea of worldliness. And it's in James chapter 2, 5, which we'll read here in just a second. He says, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? In the eyes of the world. And it goes on, he's going to clarify that this idea of worldliness, of being polluted, is not about some sexual sin. It's actually 
about not caring for the poor. In chapter 2, verse 9, again, just outside of this section we're going to read today, he says this, and he summarizes it. If you show favoritism, you sin. It's how you treat other human beings, particularly those who are on the margins that James is interested in. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So Serena Bakru uh, is going to read scripture for us today. Serena, if you would like to unmute for us. Thank you. Thank you. Serena, are you out there? Yes, I'm here. Oh, there you are. Yes. Great. Uh, James chapter two, verses one through seven. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Serena. Appreciate that. So James is launching in here to this idea of like, hey, when two people show up at church or in the grocery store uh, or in your classroom, who gets the fancy seat at the table and who gets the floor, right? Who's, how, how are we treating people here? Do we treat the poor differently than we treat the rich? And you know the answer. The answer is yes, of course we do. It's just what our culture does. It's what we've learned. And James is inviting us to see people with a, with a whole new lens. And he's talking to believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He's like, Jesus is awesome. He's the best. What if we saw people through that lens? And he's really trying to dig down to what goes into our hearts and our minds when we see people who are different. Uh, you heard Serena read from verse four that we, when we separate people out, treat them differently, we become judges with evil thoughts. We're thinking about some people as differently made in the image of God, separate but equal, we might say. Trying to give lip service to the idea that, oh, everyone's made in the image of God, but not treating them that way. And it really comes down to this idea of like, how do we think of people? 
How do we treat people? In 2.5, there's this contrast, right? It says, God has chosen those who are poor. And talks about in the eyes of the world, this, that, and the other. And then there's a but, but you have dishonored the poor. Like, this is how God sees people. And this is how we see people. And there's an invitation to a different kind of life. We, uh, we had a friend for dinner earlier in the pandemic and uh, great people grew up here in Long Beach, has been connected to City Church some. And uh, we had this great conversation around economics, money, family, values. Uh, and uh, she grew up on the, on the poor side of town, so to speak. And we had this conversation it was, it was super fun. We were laughing. We were laughing a lot about our crazy family. She knows our family very well. And so she was uh, graciously pointing out a few uh, oddities, shall we say. Uh, and then as we were talking a little bit more about food, she was talking about how much fast food she ate growing up. And she ate fast food all the time. And we were talking about this question of, well, you, you didn't have much money. You know, I don't understand why you would eat fast food all the time. And, and in me, there, this is going on in my head, this, this judgment of a whole, not just her, but a whole class of people who eat fast food and spend, spend their money that way. And very conversationally and without defense, she said, well, you know, our refrigerator broke and uh, we worked so hard to save up the money to fix it. And so we took all of our savings and we fixed our refrigerator. And then a week later, it broke again. And she was in substandard housing uh, with the landlord that was not good. She said, you know, afterwards we just ate fast food because we didn't have the money to fix our refrigerator. I thought, oh my, God have mercy on me. Right, how, how quickly I can think of people differently. This is an invitation, right? What, do we understand people who are different than us? Do we dishonor the poor in how we think? Then James turns the corner and he says, not only do you dishonor the poor, but you, you overvalue the rich. And this is what we do. We, we want to give the rich the best seat at the table. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? James is super challenging here. I mean, super challenging. So this is what he says in... in Chapter two, verse six, which Serena read. 
And I'm going to break it down into the three questions. He specifically asks, he says, you know, why do you, you know, why do you give rich the, the best seats at the table when number one, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Number two, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? And number three, are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? He says, it's the rich who exploit you, and yet you give them the best seat at the table. I don't know if you've seen, maybe you have seen the statistics. I mean, they're remarkable that the net worth of American billionaires, which is not a very big club, over the first six months of the pandemic, increased by $685 billion, while the net worth of the rest of America was absolutely decimated. Over $2.4 trillion of wealth lost as people had to spend their savings, as people lost jobs. And you just think, wow, that's right. And you, and you look at some of the lawsuits going on against some of these companies and you think they're just taking it off the, the backs of their, their minimum, minimum wage workers. And we just have to think like, what? I don't. James was writing 2000 years ago about the rich exploiting the poor. It seems very relevant today. He asks a second question. He says, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? It's, it's the rich. Those with all the privilege, they're the ones who drag us into court. And there are a number of folks here who've done a lot more reading and thinking than I have. Um, but the issue of, of mass incarceration Who's getting dragged into court and put away? Who is that? Who's doing the dragging? Who's being dragged? You know. And if you look up on the Equal Justice Initiative, like the, their opening line about, um, about trying to reform the justice process is they, their opening line is the wealth. Wealth is the primary determinant in who gets convicted of crimes. Wealth. Because the poor can't defend in the ways that they need to be defended. The poor get taken advantage of. And I don't know, my, you know, Katie's been reading uh, The New Jim Crow, and we've had some conversations. Jason Sexton, actually, who's on this call, um, he actually teaches about um, prison reform and stuff like that. He was over the other day. We were having this conversation. It was just stunning. But the, the, the idea behind the, and so this is, this is new information for me, and I'm still processing, trying to figure out what, what is going on in our country. So the war on drugs sounds like a great idea, like drugs are bad. 
the war on drugs started under President Nixon. And it was started by people in power. Drug use was on the decline, right? So drug use is going down, but Nixon wanted to get elected. And so, so his, the, the guy who advised him on domestic policy gave uh, an interview later on. This is actually dec two decades later. Uh, and this is what he said. This is John Ehrlichman, chief domestic advisor to President Nixon. He said, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You, end, you understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Take that in people. This is exactly what James is talking about. See, I, these very people that we, we prize and we want to be like that or whatever it is. Says they're the ones who are dragging you off to court. And in so many times, so many times when given the chance to, to denounce the racism that's at the root of these sorts of things, to denounce white supremacy, they refuse. Even on national television, in front of the whole nation, they refuse to condemn white supremacy. It's craziness. Well, the US, I mean, we've got 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's incarcerated population. And African-Americans are inc incarcerated at five times the rate of whites. I mean, th this is crazy. This is our world. And James is here inviting us to say, there's a different way. It's the way of Jesus. Finally, he, he talks about this, uh, this idea that, uh, are they, are the rich, you know, the privileged, the powerful, are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name to him whom you belong? And a few hundred years after this uh, was written, Emperor Constantine, in some ways, perhaps with good intentions even, you know, it's debated, what, did he really become a Christian? Did he not? He was a, the great Roman emperor who declared right, who, who converted and declared himself the head of the church. And like, we're gonna, we're gonna make the world Christian now. And, and with him, there's this alignment now of power and the church. 
now that now the church is in power. And this is where the blasphemy comes. We just so willingly give in to this idea that we need more power. We've got power. We can't give up power. We're the church. We have our rights. And when we hear churches talking about our rights, think what what is going on and instead james puts out this invitation and this is what i want to close with he talks about love and this is not a a wishy-washy kind of love he's talking about a radical love that invites people to the table Radical love that affects what we do with our money. A radical love that will keep us up at night. Thinking about how to set right a justice system that has gone wrong. And so he writes in 2.5. He says, dear siblings. And three times he's going to use this word love. It's the Greek word agape, you know, God's unconditional love. And the word dear is this word agape, agape siblings. You're, You're the beloved. Do you know who you are? He's like, you're so loved. You don't have to go after power. You don't have to go after money. And you don't have to think of yourself as the downtrodden, the damaged, the broken. No, you are the beloved community. That phrase beloved community was used by Dr. King. One of his mentors was a man named Howard Thurman. He was a pastor, a teacher, an educator. He wrote this book called Jesus and the Disinherited. And in it, he tells a story about his grandmother. And his grandmother kept working on him and it changed his life, right? This perspective that he had, it changed his life and his fight for justice. In fact, Howard Thurman was the first first guy in America who came up with this idea like, hey, let's make a multiracial church. He partnered with a white pastor uh, in San Francisco and started a little church there. Uh, it didn't go so well, but he tried. But I mean, as well as doing amazing other stuff and mentoring people like Martin Luther King Jr. But I, when he describes his own journey, this is how he says he got the, the fire in his bones to do justice, to work for nonviolence, for change in our world. Um, he, and he uses the, the word in the story that we don't use today, but I'll read to you what he said. He said, when I was a youngster, this was drilled into me by my grandmother. The idea was given to her by a certain slave minister who on occasion held secret religious meetings with his fellow slaves. How everything in me quivered with a pulsing tremor of raw energy when in her recital, she would come to the triumphant climax of the minister. You, you are not, the end words, you are not slaves. You 
are God's children. It's who you are. It's who you are. You are the beloved. It changed Thurman's life. And it's changed so many of ours through him. And the people he mentored and the things that he's done. James goes on to say, he talks about heaven, the kingdom of heaven that's breaking in now and one day in fullness. And he describes it this way, 2-5. He says, it's the kingdom that he promised to those who love him. Not those who checked all the boxes were really moral. But those who really loved, those were the ones. He said, come, come, come. And then finally, there's the command uh, within the, the very next verse after, after what Serena read for us today, where he said, because you are beloved and because of this vision of heaven, which is about love, we get to inherit it. It's, it, it's on our love for God. Because of that, he commands, keep the royal law found in scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. We already are the beloved. We're reminded that the, that the way into the kingdom is loving God. And so therefore, we love people. That's what we do. And maybe it comes down to the question of who, who do you have at your table? Who do you welcome at your table? Who do you give priority to in your thoughts? Who do you judge? How do you spend your money? Will you invite those who are on the margins to be with you, to be with Jesus? Maybe, maybe you are being invited now to go out to the margins and find Jesus because that's where he is.